Hello, Reinvent Yourself fans. This is John Alba. I'm the executive producer of the Reinvent Yourself podcast, and I also happen to be the nephew of your beloved host, Leslie Jane Seymour. It was about four years ago that I noticed my aunt was going through a reinvention of her own in her life. And given my background in broadcasting, I said, there's one thing that you're not doing that everyone else is doing, and you're too cool not to be doing, so you need to do it. And that was start a podcast. And she had no idea what she was doing, didn't have the tools, and none of that. And we worked hard to come up with an idea for a podcast that we initially called the CoveyCast, and now you know it as Reinvent Yourself. And I wanted to leave this little note here at the start of this podcast, episode 100, to say how proud I am of her. I'm so excited that she has stuck with it and brought the voice of so many constant reinventors, people who are sharing their stories and are inspiring you to do great things. And I would hope that you all join me in the sentiment in agreeing that my aunt herself is a tremendous reinventor, and we are all grateful and thankful to have her words of support, not just here on the Reinvent Yourself podcast, but also through the Covey Club and wherever else you may have followed her over the course of her career. She is an inspiration to me, as I know she is to many, many, many others around the world. She has no idea that I put this at the beginning of this podcast, so she's going to be in for a surprise when she listens. But Leslie, I am so proud of you. I'm grateful for you. I love you. And congratulations on 100 episodes. Everybody enjoy episode 100 of the Reinvent Yourself podcast. Hello, all you reinventors out there. It's Leslie Jane Seymour, and I am the founder of Reinvent Yourself. And I am so excited to tell you that we are at our 100th interview. And I can't even believe it either. We started this, what, two years ago and had no idea where we were headed and how we were going to do it. And thanks to all of you and your feedback, we shortened things up. I stopped going, mm, uh-huh, mm-hmm. Um, I learned how to, to be a better interviewer. Thank you very much for your tips and tricks. Um, and your, your listening pleasures, and uh, I learned a lot. And we just wanted to bring you a compilation today of our greatest hits, of the most interesting interviews I did, and of the most interesting people I did too. So we have this great compilation for you, and I hope you'll enjoy it. We have everybody from the famous to the people you've never heard of before, but they are all bringing you amazing honesty about how they reinvented or about how hard it is to reinvent, even though you're going to do it. And their best tips and tricks and their best insights. I'm always amazed at how everybody is so honest, so direct, and so giving. And I think you will totally enjoy this. I love this discussion with Ginny and Mika Brzezinski. They are sisters-in-law. Um, Mika's a very old friend. Um, she's not old. She's just an 
long-term friend, we should say. Um, and Ginny is a new friend. And what I love is that they wrote this book together. It's called Comeback Careers, Rethink, Refresh, Reinvent Your Success at 40, 50, and Beyond. And what I love is just the way the two of them banter so well and push each other. And I love the fact that Mika just says, get out there, network, and don't be ashamed that you're networking so that you can actually support yourself and become a good providing member of society. Women too often will feel embarrassed, and I know I've had the same problem, of doing any kind of retail networking where you're actually networking in order to further yourself or push your career along. And that's one of the reasons why we don't get ahead. Men do this every time. They have no shame and no problems with it. Women do. So you're going to love that this lovely clip with the two sisters-in-laws cheering you on and saying, go get the cash. People like to help other people. It's about having those kinds of conversations. Or if you're thinking that your network is all people like you, and maybe you've been home for a few years, it doesn't matter. Those people, someone in your network may have a cousin or a sister or a friend who is in the industry that you are looking to return to. So networking is not about icky. Um, and the way people network now is, you know, on walks, on hikes, on um, you know, getting together um, after a yoga class. It, it doesn't have to feel gross. Um, yeah. It's good. Why do women feel it's gross, though? Men don't feel yeah, it's, it's gross. Serious. Why do we feel that way? So I'm so sick of us. <laughs> yeah. Because I think we feel that it's not authentic. Yes, um, yes. And, well, okay. you need to start making it authentic that you want to make money and make some connections. There's just nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. It feels inauthentic because it feels untoward because women have weird feelings about making money for themselves. Yeah, yeah, this ends yeah. now. Like yeah. there is nothing inauthentic about wanting to network, meet some people, have some strategic conversations about getting ahead for you. Like someone will look at you straight in the eye and be like, oh, that's kind of cool. All right, let me help her out. That sounds, well, maybe she can help me too. Of course you want to think of what you can do for the other person, but there is nothing wrong with wanting to make some cash. What I love about Gretchen Carlson, who I call the person who launched a thousand resignations, um, is how she talks about her parents and how influential they were on her as a child growing up and how they told her that she could do anything she wanted to do, but it was going to come with a lot of work. And she recounts an amazing story about being very early in school and put in the wrong reading group. She was put in the reading group for kids who can't read and she could read. And she had to stand up and go to that teacher and tell her that she was in the wrong group and she needed to be moved. And what I love is that that same gutsiness that you see back then and the encouragement of the parent to continue with that gutsiness, which a lot of parents would not do for girls. They would have told them, especially back then, to sit down and shut up, um, then played itself out, what, 50 years later, 40 years later, when she had to take down a very, very, very big boss in media. And there's something wonderful about 
people saying, I never knew this was going to happen to me. I never knew, I never intended it to happen to me. And then you go back and you dig around forensically in their history and you see the seeds of, they didn't know what was coming, but you see this, the seeds of the response. And I think that's something that all of us can do when we are looking for what it is we should do or feel our calling is, um, is digging around in your past to see the things that you're really passionate about and your basic motivations and where they come from, because you may end up using those in your future. I mean, and I hope anyone listening that if you're a parent that, that you're doing this with your kids, because it really, I think, put me on a trajectory to believe in myself, be gutsy and have confidence. And, and the world was just like in front of me. And that was because I had parents who, specifically my mom, who told me on a daily basis when she would put me to bed, she'd be like, you realize you can be anything you want to be in this world. And I would say, yes. And she'd say, but you also realize that that will come with a tremendous amount of hard work. And she would say, those are our expectations for you that, you know, you've been given some talents in your life and we expect you to cultivate them. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so it was, you know, when you're, when you hear that Mm -hmm. on a daily basis, um, combined with the fire in the belly innately, you know, one of the, one of the best stories I love to tell was when I was in kindergarten and I don't know why they did this back then. I hope, I hope to God they don't do this in school anymore. I don't think they do, but they separated us into two groups on the first day of school. And the one group was the kids who could read. And the other group was the kids who could not read. Oh my Lord. I know. And I erroneously got into the group that could not read, but Oh my God. Yeah. I knew how to read. So I went up to the teacher's desk three times that day and said, but Mrs. Grossline, I you know how to read. And she kept telling me to just go back and sit down. Not that she wasn't a, you know, a nice woman or a good teacher, but um, I don't know. And I was so upset about it. And I can still feel myself running home from school that day and slamming the back door and, and screaming for my mom to tell her that I had been put in the wrong group. And she called the school and the next day I was in, in the right group. But I tell that story because, first of all, what if I hadn't done anything? Right. I mean, it could have changed my entire educational path. It could have changed the way I looked at the world. Like, it could have changed that if I didn't stand up and speak up for myself then as a five or six-year-old, what was I going to be like at 12 or 20 or 50? Right. And, and so I think it's, you know, it's a really important message of how, how I was raised and what I was told to always know that I could be anything I wanted to be and to stand up and speak up and, and know that your voice matters. What I love about my conversation with Joan London is not only that she is so down to earth and so real and so um, just on target but, and the fact that she really is somebody, you know, she went through her own grand reinvention when she was hustled off a major network show as the top anchor after 20 years and uncere- unceremoniously dismissed, mostly because of age, which is totally outrageous. And then she went on to have this incredible career afterwards. And now she's a big health advocate and she has her own, practically her own network. 
And what I love is that she, she comes clean on the fact that after being on air in front of 25 million people every morning, she actually had a terrible stage fright of being in front of people. And she had to figure out a way of getting over her fears once she left uh, the network news. And, and she talks about how she did that. And her whole point is, if I can do it, you can do it. And you shouldn't have to live with any fear. I remember right when I left, I, I had no idea what I was going to be doing. So I did know that I was not comfortable speaking in front of large groups, to which my friends all used to say, come on, how can that be? How can you get worried about being in front of 500 people when on air you have 25 million people watching you every day? And I would say, yeah, but I never see any of them. And so I decided to get over that fear. And I signed up with Tony Robbins and went out on tour with him for two years. We did about 26 speeches a year in front of, by the way, crowds of 25,000 people in big arenas. And I mean, the first few were almost surreal. I was so nervous. I don't even hardly remember them, but I got over it. And ironically, today in my world today, because um, I do a tremendous amount of speaking today, Day, maybe 30 speeches a year. And I'm like literally a walking, living example of, of how you can turn a total fear into a total passion. I call Jennifer Witter the mother of personal branding. And what's funny is she's somebody who I didn't know um, when I was at Moore Magazine. She actually tracked me down. She read Moore. She read my editor's letter. She loved what we did. And we ended up in an event together. I think it was in Philadelphia. Anyway, she tracked me down. We fell in love. She's just an amazing, amazing person. Really interesting, warm, lovely, smart. And I love that her real specialty is nailing down that very hard to understand thing called personal branding. And she's really excellent at digging it out and explaining how you figure out what your personal brand is. And I love the fact that she says that the, when you do what's called a personal audit, which is the thing that she asks you to do to get started, you call up 30 friends or you do send emails with a survey. And the first thing you have to ask them is the simplest, most basic question because it will tell you whether you have a personal brand or not. What do I do? And she means what what is it that you think I do? You're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're a brand specialist, what are you? And she says that you'd be shocked that many people either, either you've got a good personal brand and they can tell you, or a lot of people will be like, I have no idea, <laughs> in which case you know you're in trouble and you need to figure out what your personal brand is. And it's a great first step. And in any way in this podcast, she gives a whole list of other personal branding tips and tricks that get you started. And that's often the hardest part is where the heck do I start with this damn personal brand stuff? A personal brand basically is what people say about you when you leave the room. Does perception meet reality? It's who you are, what you are, what you represent. How do you market yourself? 
And that basically is what a personal brand is. And it ranges everything from how you market yourself as a business professional and how you support the personal brand. And that, when I say support, it's what does your website look like? What is your elevator message? How do you position yourself? How do you dress? It's the full and complete package. So with a personal brand, with the self-audit, um, what I tell people to do, there are multiple steps, but I think that the audit is the most important, important thing. And that is when you go out and ask about 20 or 30 individuals. And yes, it's going to take a lot of time, but it's worth it. Because when you go out and survey your business associates, your trusted colleagues, networking associates, even family members, asking them a series of questions, no more than five or six. Because if you ask them more than that, you'll yeah. lose them. Yeah, they won't do it. Yeah, it won't be easy too much. And then you give them the option. You can do it by email or you can do it by phone. And a lot of people will say, do you mind if we do it by email? Try to be as flexible as possible. The most important question out of the questions are, what do I do? It sounds so simple. What do you mean, what do I do? You mean in terms of what it, what yeah, do Yeah, what do I do? Yeah. In, oh, in terms do you of know what, what yeah. I do? Oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's like, Leslie, like, it's do, so obvious. Yeah, send it out right? to people. Yeah, like, what do I do? And they go, and I have no idea. <laughs> exactly. And you're thinking, I know that they know what I do. Oh, but but a don't. lot of times wow. they don't. The nuances of wow. what you do. What do I do? Wow. Yes. Holy moly. Okay, you are really yeah. a step one yeah. baby step awesome okay we forget yes. those and then, okay yes and then the other question that you must ask and this is the one that scares people the most what can i do better what All is right. my weakness because nobody wants to hear where they're not doing well but this is constructive criticism this is going to help you get better what i love about talking to gretchen rubin is the fact that i knew her from afar as that happiness lady. She has so well branded herself that when you think of happiness, her, her face shows up, which is really wonderful. That's exactly what you want when you're building a brand. And I love how she tells us how absolutely, what, whimsically, she stumbled across that subject. And here is somebody, which I didn't know, who had clerked for a Supreme Court justice and was going in that direction and stumbled across the idea of happiness in between books when she's sitting on a bus asking herself in downtime when her mind is totally relaxed, what's the one thing that everybody wants? <laughs> and I also love the fact that she talks about how she just then dove into the research and started finding out all about happiness and what research was out there and literally mind that subject in a way that nobody else ever had. And what I really think is interesting about Gretchen is that, as she says, when I ask her down the road, what's the difference between the entrepreneurs who go ahead and do it and who don't, is she says that you have to be willing to do the hard work. A lot of people say they want to do it, but they don't really. And I think it's it seems like a sort of toss away line, but it's actually not. 
And if you listen to the way that she just dug into her topic, because I know that's an issue for a lot of people is, what is my topic? What is my, what is that thing that is going to be there for me? And that is going to become my next pivot. Um, but you have to be willing to do the work. And she really talks about how that happened to her with happiness. So why happiness? How did you stumble across happiness? I mean, it's hilarious before I knew you well, be like that happiness lady. And I'm sure that's um, how you become known around, <laughs> around the country, around yeah. the world. How did you become the happiness lady? Yeah, I know. And it's a nice thing to be. Um, right. I, well, I mentioned that my book, I was just finishing up my book, 40 Ways to Look at JFK. And as a writer, there's a time where your book is finished in terms of your role, but it hasn't come out into the public yet. And so there's a little bit of this downtime. And for me, that's often a time where I have kind of this new creative bandwidth that's opening up because I'm kind of not occupied in a new subject quite yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm not... I'm, and I'm, I, my work is almost done with, with a book that's about to come out. And so I, and I was stuck on a crowded bus in the pouring rain <laughs> in Manhattan. And I looked out the window and I thought, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, I want to be happy. And I realized I didn't spend any time thinking about whether I was happy or how I could be happier. And I thought, I should do a happiness project. And I ran out the next day, got a giant stack of books from the library and started researching happiness. Can you make yourself happier? How could I make myself happier? And at first it was just for me. It was just something that I mm -hmm. was doing because I was really interested in it. Mm -hmm. As I said, I often do things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but then it was so rich and fascinating. I just couldn't come to the end of it. So I thought, oh, I'll make this my next book. And mm -hmm. then indeed, I've never left that subject. So here is Chip Connolly, who is, I want to call him what, the godfather of not getting old, even though he runs a thing called the Modern Elder Academy, but he's looking at it in such a different way. And I think it's such a forward thinking way. And here are his three tips and tricks for making sure that you are open-minded, you stay in touch with people who are not just in your age group so that you can be inspired by them and create inspiration for them. And that you don't define yourself just by your age. And it's, it's so smart and so well thought out and really understanding, spending some time understanding what you bring to a situation. I mean, we are not 10 years old now. We know who we are, but how do you, what do you call that? He call that, calls himself an alchemist. And once you have a name for yourself, you can do anything. And what do you think, if we could list the top three things standing in the way of actually reinventing ourselves, what is that today? All three of them probably are in between our ears. <laughs> um, I think a lot of it is just, it's hard to change. I would heck, highly recommend everybody who listens to this who's interested in change in their life and why they find it difficult, watch a TED Talk by a guy named Dan Gilbert, Harvard uh, psychologist, who, who basically showed you, when it comes to your future self, you have no idea how much you're going to change in the next 10 years. He was able to show for people from age 20 to age 90 that on average, people vastly underestimated how much change they'd have. So the first thing is be open to change. L understand that life is liminal. Look up that word. It means that you're in a transitional stage, especially in midlife. Midlife is full of transitions, whether it's getting divorced, having parents die, going through menopause, 
uh, empty nest, etc. So change is a given and you need to embrace it and then adapt to it and be resilient. So that's number one. That's absolutely between the ears. Um, secondly is you need to be open to networking and, 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 and hanging out in fishing holes that you're not used to. Um, what does that mean? It means that if you want to go work for a company and maybe somehow get involved with younger people in, who are in startups, then figure out where are younger people going out and not just socializing and doing karaoke. That's not going to be it. But what are some associations or groups? Go to a summit event. You know, get invited to one of those summit series events, and which has on average people about 35 who are interested in changing the world and have lots of great dynamic ideas around business. Start to actually network in, in groups that are beyond the people you know uh, and are most familiar with. Um, and then I'd say maybe third is uh, uh, get clear on the following question. What mastery can you offer to the world? Uh, here's an exercise we do at the Modern Elder Academy. We ask people to ask that question five times repeatedly. So you're, you're paired off with someone and that person's asking you a question. So what mastery can you offer? And you might, the first thing you might say, maybe quite specific to what your job is today. But then they ask, they say, thank you and ask the question again. And you can't answer the same way twice. By the time you get to the fifth question, I promise you, you've done an archaeological dig inside yourself to understand what's the essence of your differentiator in the world. And once you're clear on what that is, um, I know, for example, I'm a social alchemist. So that means I better understand that one of the things I can offer in wherever I'm going to be is how I bring people together who are quite different, but the, there's a potency by having them together, either on a team or at a dinner party. Um, and so that's something I don't know well, but I didn't know that until I did that exercise and realized that was what I was really good at. And that's part of what we try to do at the Modern Elder Academy. So I met Tashara Ayers at an event, and what I was totally blown away by was how gorgeous she was and what a fabulous dresser she was. She was probably the best dressed person there, very creative, obviously had a flair for fashion. Um, and then when we talked, I was completely blown away to find out she'd been a single mom at 14, and had also become the caregiver to her younger brother shortly after that because her mother had passed away. And even with those two impediments for a young, young girl, she managed to create a, care, a career in the healthcare industry and start a radio show on the side. And at 38, she's about to be an empty nester. Her son is about to go off to college and she says she will be reinventing again. And what I love is how she just talks about clearing a quiet time. She used journaling. She used spiritual thinking as well to figure out what it was that she wanted and the voices inside of her and what they were saying. The most important thing in many of these reinventions is really listening to that inner voice. But we are running at such a pace and we are running so fast that we never take a moment to really ask ourselves, what is it that we're really looking for? And she really gives a very in-depth explanation of how to go about excavating that. Do you have one or two um, pointers for people who are trying to reinvent themselves, either their lives or their careers? Um, that they could, you know, 
start with tomorrow? What are the, there are two little tippy tricky kind of things that you might have for them? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, well, one of them goes back to what I said earlier about intrinsic versus extrinsic. So internal versus external. Right. I would say if, if someone listening that said, what can I do tomorrow, this afternoon? Right. I would say, take a moment and stop. Just just stop. Sit still, sit down, get into a quiet place, pull out a journal, a blank mm-hmm. notebook, and just write, write in no particular format, in mm-hmm. uh, no particular structure, but take a moment to feel where you are and mm-hmm. to really think and don't be afraid to be with yourself in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I think in order to reinvent today, tomorrow, next week, we have to understand where we are, where we are in time, mm-hmm. where we are with ourselves, um, and to be real with where we are. Mm-hmm. So, and to get to those three places, you have to spend time with yourself. Hmm. Um, so if you have children, you know, you want to start tomorrow, you want to start Friday, try to find a babysitter, sit them down in front of, get mm-hmm. some popcorn in the mm-hmm. cartoon, pop mm-hmm. it in and have mm-hmm. an hour and a half with yourself. Turn the phone off you know, turn no Netflix and chill, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, just spend time with you. And what we'll find, what I find, it it is a proven um, strategy. I found that all along at at each point of my reinvention, there were thoughts that I was having. There was feelings that I was feeling. There were words that come into mind that I pushed away or I didn't Mm -hmm. realize that they were points of reinvention because so much other stuff was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, so stopping and listening to yourself that can happen anytime you can start tomorrow Um, and what you're doing when you stop and you listen and you write out those things that you hear and you feel Mm -hmm. is again you're tapping into an internal source that allows you to then create a strategy to act those things out externally do you use any particular type of system was it did you like read something or follow a podcast or anything online are you just this is just your form of journaling that helped you yes so primarily it it was journaling Uh um it was reading um yeah so i'm i'm a christian so i read the bible Mm -hmm. and um it was having mentors um, in my life and that were able to, um, support, you know, where I was when I was ready to speak with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a, it was primarily journaling cause I'm, okay. I'm usually a very private person. Okay. Um, and so I wasn't ready to always share and, and your book or your journal can't write back to you. <laughs> I'm, at, I'm sorry, speak back to you. Right. So journaling, um, motivational, books or messages, if there's a voice that resonates with you, um, you know, whoever that voice is, it could be a, a household name or it could be someone in your family. Um, and then again, if you're, if there's any spiritual connection, I would say really, really tap back into that as well. So I particularly love the discussion I had with a very old friend of mine, Eva Dillon, who had been on the sales team at Glamour when I was there and went off and did all kinds of other publishing events. She was the publisher of Reader's Digest, very, very successful, who, when she decided that she was done working formally, came across a box of 
information that had been left behind when her mother passed away and started digging into the history of her family, which she didn't know much about. All she knew was that I, she was born, I want to say in India. She was born all around the world because they traveled all around the world. And she knew that her father was with the State Department, but she didn't really know what he did. And there was one moment where it was said in a newspaper that he was with the CIA, but she didn't really know that. So she's digging around as the adult daughter, and she discovers all this amazing information that it turned out he was this quite um, high-ranking officer, and he actually was this undercover sort of liaison to the top general in the Soviet Union who was passing secrets to the U.S., and she never knew that, and no one had told that story, and basically he was responsible for keeping a Cold War from getting hot by working with this guy to make sure that nothing boiled over into an actual nuclear war of any sort, and she tracked down. She's not a writer. That's what's so amazing, um, but she is curious, and she talks about how she uses her skills from sales to go find the information, which is very very journalistic of her, and um, how she dug out all this information. She did the interview. She tracked down the son of um, that general who was summarily executed when they found out he was working for the U.S., um, and she tells the story um, of both their fathers through the two children. And it's a fabulous read. It's a great story. It's really timely. But what I really love is how she explains repurposing skills that she had in order to create that second portion of her life. She had a best-selling book. It just, you know, came upon me. I said, I really need to do something with this information. And mostly because I was very curious about the Russian general. I looked and looked all over the place and found very little, there never had been a book written about him, and, and yet here he was, the highest ranking Soviet to ever serve our country, and, and, and you know, there's no major story told about him. So as a, as a good, uh, you know, most of my career in magazines, unlike yours, was on the sales side, you know, sales and marketing, and we were trained to get out there and find the information. Uh-huh. And I, Aha, uh-huh. and, and I used those skills and my organizational skills, and I went and interviewed uh, more than 18 of my father's former colleagues and other uh, um, intelligence professionals like the CIA, excuse me, the FBI, and, and, and all kinds of people, and eventually found out that the um, son of the general had immigrated to the United States and was here in the country. And when I approached him, he was completely willing to tell me his entire story growing up in the Soviet Union as, you know, the child of a spy, just like I had on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And and he had all these memories about his father. And, you know, eventually I just did all this research. And I said, someone needs to tell this story. And as I went about interviewing all the CIA uh, personnel that I found, uh, they all said, oh, my God, we wish someone would write a, a book about Polyakov because he's so important. Jessica Scott is such an interesting interview because she's such a contradiction. Here is this captain from the army who's been deployed several times overseas. And she's also this amazingly accomplished of romance fiction. And she explains to us where and why she started writing 
romance fiction. And mostly it's because she was bored in officer training camp and she was just bored to tears while they were all taking notes and she would start to write. But then it goes on and she talks about one of her missions was to start writing um, to change the stereotypes of women in the army because she felt that they'd gotten a bad rap, that they'd been stereotyped into one type or another, and it really wasn't a fair reflection of how women are, are actually behave in the army and what they bring to it. And it's a wonderful discussion of somebody using their reinvention to see deeper into themselves and in many ways to change the world from a very unique perspective. So what were your barriers to the reinvention process? And did you know it was a reinvention when you were starting it or was it more just an outlet that then became a reinvention? And how do you I, see yourself in the future? Because you're teaching now, but will you yeah. wind down? Will you wind that down and just be a writer? And and talk about it. you've published what six? How many about novels you published? Um, I'm, I think I'm close to twenty now. Twenty. Okay, there was a yeah. group of six in the beginning, I guess that you yeah. mentioned. And yeah, okay. there was yeah. Um, so I, it turns out I love teaching, right? Like, you know, right. you, you know, back in back way back when I joined the army, cause I didn't want to do know what I wanted to do when I grew up, but I really love teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I started writing, I didn't know that I was teaching people. Um, mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of folks that have, have emailed me and said, wow, like your books just gutted me. And I learned so much from this. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, I didn't know it was a reinvention at the time. I knew um, it was going to be different than what I was doing in the army, um, but I didn't realize how different it was going to be, but also how much it was going to impact my effectiveness in the army in a lot of ways, right? Like, um, I think women can be very toxic to each other when it comes to issues like harassment and assault in some ways. Um, and I think being in this space, Mm -hmm. really opened my eyes up to the reality of what women deal with and helped make yeah. me a much more effective ally and advocate than I would have been otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's radically altered my views on a lot of things mm -hmm. um, in a good way. And I'm very, I'm very happy with that. I'm very happy with the writers that challenged me, my views mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and made me really reassess kind of who I was and, and how I was going to be. So I wasn't an advocate um, for women at all as a younger woman. Um, I was just kind of here and I'm going to do my thing and you do your thing and go mm -hmm. with God. But now mm -hmm. I think I'm a much stronger advocate. I think it's, mm -hmm. it's helped me find my voice. Um, mm -hmm. And I love being older because I really don't care what people think anymore. Like that is yeah, the I mean, total yeah. benefit yeah. of being over 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what I love about Una Duncan is that she's just so damn honest and brutally honest about how she got started. She's probably one of the biggest trainers out there today. And she's so inspirational. She's trains trainers and she has no hesitation talking about how her reinvention came about was because she was one big fat blob sitting around and she had to figure out how to incentivize herself to get up off the couch. And she had some very clever little tricks um, of putting incentives in front of herself when she got on the treadmill and only when she was on the treadmill. And the rest is history. And what I really love about her too is she's a big cursor. <laughs> she just says what she feels. 
and she's just a lovely person. So I think you will really enjoy listening to Una. You know what? The thing is, I, I very much had this sort of front of being way too cool for any of that stuff. Like there's no way I would have joined any sports teams or been caught trying at anything physically. I found that really embarrassing, especially because I wasn't good at it. And, um, you know, I was a passionate smoker and, Oh my God, really? Okay. Totally. Totally. And, uh, you know, so anyway, so, but on the other hand, there was a secret part of me that was like, you know what, I'm getting bigger and bigger. And Mm. it didn't match who I felt like I was. I felt like, you know, I was really accomplished in all these other areas of my life, but my body um, was just not in sync with that. And I would look at pictures of myself and say, that can't be me or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and so I would go on these diets and I would do it really secretly because it wasn't really in alignment with my, mm-hmm. you know, feminist values and all that mm-hmm. to be dieting. But mm-hmm. secretly I'm sending away for like this chlorophyll slime that you're supposed to eat at midnight and it makes you <laughs> wait while you're asleep. Seriously, that's an uh-huh. actual thing that I did. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, anyways, and then of course, none of it works. And then um, one day I just started... Um, this is again, kind of embarrassing. This is why the stuff is out there, by the way. Um, I started, I made a deal with myself that I was allowed to watch Jerry Springer and Lori Povich. Uh (laughs) I was on the treadmill and that was the only time. Oh my God. Okay. (laughs) It was the only time I was allowed to do this guilty pleasure TV watching and I could walk. And then eventually I started, I just made a deal. I was like, what if I tried jogging just for one commercial? Oh, and wow. yeah. Okay. And then it just built really, really slowly like that. And I had no, you know, ego around it. I had no, no one was around. It was just okay. treadmill. So, but it was because I started creating, and now what I've realized is that I created a habit loop around exercise because mm-hmm. it was associated with this pleasure and this mm-hmm. addiction of watching these shows, the way they're edited is so addictive mm-hmm. um, that I started to develop this positive habit loop towards being on the mm-hmm. treadmill and moving my body. Mm-hmm. And that's what led me to doing a little bit more exercise. And then sort of one thing led to another and I you know, became a fitness instructor and then a trainer started training trainers and blah, 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 Jeez. blah, blah. So I hope you enjoyed our hundredth episode. I can't even believe I'm saying that. Thank you for being with us on Reinvent Yourself. And please join us and let's have fun for the next 100. Take care. Be good.